0: Internet of Things is the term used to describe the increasing connectivity and intelligence of physical objects within our lives. IoT has manifested within enterprises under the term industrial IoT, as wireless connectivity and machine learning have started to improve devices such as centrifuges and conveyor belts and factory robotics. In the consumer space, IoT has moved slower than many people expected. It remains to be seen when we will have widespread computation within consumer devices such as microwaves and washing machines and light switches. IoT computers have different constraints than general-purpose computers. Security, reliability, battery life, power consumption, and cost structures can be very different in IoT devices than in your laptop or your smartphone. One technology that could solve some of the problems within IoT is WebAssembly, a newer binary instruction format for executable programs. Jonathan Berry is a software engineer and the organizer of the San Francisco WebAssembly Meetup. Jonathan has a significant background in the IoT industry, and he joins the show to discuss the state of WebAssembly, the surrounding technologies, and their impact on IoT. Jonathan Berry, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's 2019. Describe the state of the Internet of Things market.
1: Oh, boy.
0: It is
1: uh, an ever-evolving market. It's past the initial hype cycle. It's past the early prototyping phase. And it's starting to see a lot more definition in terms of use cases and, and companies really finding how IoT works for them.
0: Why does Internet of Things seem like one of those markets that's always five years away from happening, and then five years pass, and it seems yet again like it's just five years away from happening? That's a good question. I think the like, final vision of a
1: fully connected, intelligent space is really easy for us to see because of you know, sci-fi, and we can immediately see the benefits of that world. But the complexity of getting all those things connected and making sense of all those connected things and making it cost effective such that, you know, the price goes to zero to do all that is just so much more complex than we ever realized. And as you go deeper and deeper into building out those core primitives, if you will, we're just so far behind than where we need to be.
0: You were at Google for six years from 2011 to 2017. How did Google's strategy around IoT evolve over that six-year period? It started really early, even before I was involved with IoT,
1: really with connected printers. Some of the earliest taking a device, adding connectivity, and, and figuring out how to manage it was in the Cloud Print team. It evolved into the Android and Android managed device MDM systems. But I think it really kickstarted started when, when Google acquired Nest and started to have in-house expertise on what it takes to build a connected device. And obviously with the consumer angle, that's a whole layer of of new types of use cases and challenges both technical and product market fit. So that's really that inflection point. At the same time, Android was putting together their own strategy from their own learnings, which was started out as Project Brillo and eventually became Android Things. And you know where we are today. And I haven't been at Google for a couple of years now. It, in some ways, looks like it's on the same path, but also I think it's pivoting yet again. Let's see. You were at Nest when Nest was acquired, right? No, no. I was at Google on uh, working on Android and Firebase, and then uh, joined the Nest team shortly after.
0: Okay. What was your recollection of that acquisition? How did Google merge Nest and its IoT strategy into Google's own strategy?
1: You know, it was, I don't think the the integration really happened until recently. And that was somewhat by design, both from a Nest brand and sort of the early founding team and the way they wanted to approach extending into more the consumer space and bringing Google along. Also, I forgot to mention, there was Google Glass at the same time, which kind of had that same IoT-connected problems to solve, but were a different team altogether. And so when Nest joined, it was really go and continue doing, solve the consumer space to the best of your ability, beg, borrow, and steal Google technology as it makes sense. But really, it was its own thing. It was its own campus. It was about seven-minute drive from, from Mountain View.
0: So it wasn't, wasn't really integrated in the beginning. As you've worked on IoT for so long, I assume you've identified some prototypical challenges of IoT platforms. What are the prototypical challenges of IoT? Yeah, that's also a really good question. And it it actually is worth going into what is IoT in general, because
1: I think different people will give you different answers. And the areas that, there's a sort of these axes, right? A Internet of Things is a thing that has Internet connectivity. That's a sort of a general proposal. But it's, it's so much more varied, you know. Is, is a self-driving car an Internet of Things device? Is a smoke detector with a Wi-Fi radio an Internet of Things device? is your smartphone an Internet of Things device? So when this probably goes back to your original question, you know, why are we so always going to that pattern of five years out? It's because we're redefining and sort of honing in that IoT is actually kind of a lot of different things. So an Internet of Things platform for self-driving cars, if such a thing exists, is going to be different than an Internet of Things platform for building connected hot tubs, which would be different than building, you know, mobile platforms for phones and, and tablets. But There are some general problems that you need to go solve if you're trying to build your own Internet of Things device and certain aspects you need to provide if you want to be a platform to enable people to build those devices. And you you can definitely go into those in more detail, but you have a device. So depending on the kind of device, managing that device in terms of the software it's running, getting new software updates, keeping that device secure is actually very little to do with the internet of things, but is a core problem that needs to be solved first. And that's actually what we think a lot of times with these platforms, especially device platforms. But then providing connectivity for that device, and there's a whole bunch of ways devices can be connected to talk back to a server somewhere. Managing the devices from the cloud, so fleet management, and doing that at small volume for 100 sensors versus millions of devices and everything in between is another challenge. Data processing, machine learning, big data, that's another set of challenges, and they can be more and more specific depending on the category of connected device
0: you're really talking about. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about that platform idea. So I can imagine different kinds of quote-unquote IoT platforms. You've got cloud provider platforms like the Google's, I think, Android Things platform or, or the Google Cloud Things. I don't really know mm-hmm. what the... The messaging is around that at this point. You could have open source platforms. You could arguably say that the connected voice interface things like the Alexa connections, that's kind of a platform. Yeah, totally. What have been the different efforts at making platforms around IoT
1: work? Good question. And I, I totally blanked around voice and, and really that's sometimes categorized as, as an IoT thing. Though I always bucket those as basically smartphones with louder speakers. But I digress. Let's say build something connected. Let's say it was, you know, Alexa, Google Home type of thing. There are definitely solutions out there that you can buy hardware from a chip vendor and build out your own hardware solution and then take their software and maybe license some other software for the voice trigger words and NLP on the device. And then there are cloud providers like Google and Amazon or even specific ones I think are popping up just for voice and and connectivity to then wire it up yourself and so on to cover all those bases as opposed to -to end-to-end solutions that may or may not hit all those boxes. Maybe they don't provide hardware or whatever, but they're either being a general-purpose IoT platform or specialized. So, you know, Google's assistant program or Amazon's Alexa voice program, that's, that's a very small subset of what you might need to build your own connected voice uh, assistant. Or you go to NXP and they have a hardware development kit that has a bunch of sample apps and, and reference code to talk to, you know, some third party NLP server. So there's, again, that spectrum of, of what's required.
0: Has there been any effective efforts at open source ecosystems around IoT? Yeah. There's
1: been a bunch of successes and failures, depending on your metric of of success and failure. There are big, big projects and little, small standards. And I kind of bucket those all together. And oftentimes, you'll read articles about the standards war for IoT and, and how there's not really a war, but maybe there's just different opinions. And so there's a bunch of open standards that have been developed and redeveloped and reiterated on around things like the protocol two devices used to communicate to each other, or the security model for ensuring trusted communication between, you know, headless and low power devices, or the way that they model data and say, I'm a light bulb, and therefore I can be turned on with a switch. And there's definitely that whole category of standards and open standards. And then there's the bunch of hardware, firmware, cloud backend type of things, you know, if you, know, you can consider an Arduino as an IoT platform and an open platform in some respects because they have IoT offerings and they, they have connectivity as part of their solution. My former employer, Particle, is an end-to-end IoT platform and their entire device and, and firmware and protocols are, are out in the open. And then there's the big players who are trying to get together and create consortiums to implement open source software that is you know reference effectively. The OCF was one that was with a lot of big names in it and hasn't really progressed that far, but is continuing to be iterated on. And there's, you know, there are 20 I I could ramble off.
0: The industrial Internet of Things has developed faster than the consumer Internet of Things. What kinds of applications have been successful in industrial IoT?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because if you talk to people who have been doing industrial IoT for a long time, they would say... We've been doing it for 20, 30 years. We just called it M2M. And that is an industry term that's short for machine-to-machine. And really, the distinction was in the 70s and 80s and 90s, they had connectivity, so sensors that collected data and communicated even over IP networks, but just within a factory or just between campuses. And so it was the last mile of actually putting it onto a cloud server somewhere that, you know, probably their distinction of why they say, you know, we were doing IoT forever but it, it's those systems have been bought and, and installed, probably some of them are 15, 20 years, doing this type of sensing and actuating and collecting data. And many of them are even over IP networks. So as they bring them online, it's a natural progression. And it's the use cases like just-in-time delivery, predictive maintenance, if you know your machine has consumables, the refillable of those consumables. All those ideas actually came from industrial, manufacturing, agricultural, and they've just been reimagined in the low-cost sensor, smartphone, microcontroller world that we exist in today. So they're probably the pioneers in some ways.
0: We'll get into a discussion of WebAssembly eventually. I just want to outline in more detail IoT before we can get to kind of WebAssembly intersecting with IoT, because you're something of an expert in the IoT space let's talk a little bit more about the security of iot and i think security encompasses several different things security encompasses deployments and software updates it encompasses the connectivity and how you do permissions of connectivity and how you enforce passwords you know we could obviously talk about mirai botnets tell me what the outstanding problems of security in iot are
1: so Security for an inner thing device is very similar to how we think about our smartphones and our servers, except the constraints are completely different. So we have to treat them differently. And what I mean by that is you have data at rest on your device, and maybe an end user has access to that device, or malicious software could be installed on that device. So you have to protect that data on the the thing that you care about. There's also communication. So there's possibilities for eavesdropping and man in the middle for sending data out, so maybe there's sensitive information. There's also downloading. The ability to interject and install malicious software onto an Internet of Things device is, is very similar to you know, smartphone exploits. And then there's the servers that they're talking to, right? right? And, you know, we you know about data at rest and encryption, all those pieces. The reason why it has to be reimagined is because these devices are nothing like the hardware in, on your laptop or your smartphone or your server. Um, just for a frame of reference, the motion sensor that's probably in this, this room I'm in has... 64 to 120 megahertz of processing power as opposed to the quad-core gigahertz that's on my laptop. And the RAM that's available is maybe 64 kilobytes, maybe 120K if they they, they shell out for the bigger component. And the power budget is milliamps. And so a traditional, let's say, certificates like X509 certificates just wouldn't even fit on this device, let alone be able to load memory. So you have to take everything that you would be building for modern, unconstrained devices and scale them or reimagine them to fit on these more constrained devices.
0: IoT devices can store data locally on an embedded database. They could also shuttle it to the cloud. What are the patterns around what data to keep on device and what to shuttle to the cloud? Mm, Yeah. It also will depend on the type of IoT device we're talking
1: about. The motion sense in this room has no storage. There's nothing saved on this device. It might have some caching in RAM before it sends it off to some gateway nearby, but there's nothing available but as we move up the stack and, and more uh, capable devices and, and less constrained, so the, the gateway maybe it's talking to, maybe it has you know tens of megabytes of storage for configuration and local caching. Maybe in the future, we'll start to see devices with machine learning models on them so they can do inference before they, they shove it up to the cloud. And then there are things like laptops that are doing proce- like very intense processing but are being deployed in a car or something like that, and they could have you know, gigabytes. Mm-hmm. You can imagine someone doing a lot of local processing for uh, two reasons. And honestly, in my career, I haven't seen a whole lot of this, either one. One is local caching for dealing with offline scenarios. So you assume an online connection all the time. Well, that's great in the ethernet Wi-Fi world, but anywhere else, that, that might not be the case. And then once you connect to you, you send that over over the wire, over the air. And the other one is inference or reducing the amount of data you send over to the cloud because either A, sending more data uses more power. If you're a battery-powered system, you want to limit that. Or B, the cost of bandwidth is really expensive. Maybe you're a satellite or cell phone. You pay per byte. So you you always want to reduce that. And probably there's a subset of that, too, for privacy and and not sending everything over the the wire. But in most of the applications I saw at Nest and, and in Particle, People were doing very rudimentary things with, with data and really trying as best they can to stream it to the cloud where they'll, they'll do more processing and more traditional analytics.
0: We've gotten a bird's eye view of IoT at this point. I'd like to ease into a conversation about WebAssembly and then we can intersect the two. You organized the San Francisco WebAssembly meetup. You've been interested in the space for a while. Why did you originally get interested in WebAssembly?
1: Yeah, so it started with actually the IoT story, which we'll, we'll get to later. But when I started getting connected with the community and talking to some of the thought leaders in WebAssembly, I asked them if there was a meetup that I could go attend or maybe sponsor to my employer. And surprisingly, there was nothing in the Bay Area. There was a handful of JavaScript meetups that would have a session here and there about WebAssembly or some of the blockchain meetups having a spin on, on WebAssembly but nothing. And the reason why that surprised me so much is a lot of the core of the protocol and standards is developed in the Bay Area between Google and Apple and Mozilla and Microsoft as well. The four drivers of the original spec, you know, three or four have their headquarters or a large part of their teams here, yet none of it was being discussed in San Francisco. So I took the opportunity to, to start a community and, and invite people in and see if there's any interest. And it turns out there was. Give me the state
0: of WebAssembly from your point of view.
1: Yeah. So in twenty eighteen, when I started talking about it, the majority of folks were either at these big companies doing spec development and reference implementations, and the rest of the you know community was a lot of front-end people who are always keen on the next technology and tried it. You know, they did the Hello World, they did the you know, add two numbers kind of thing, which is early days, despite the fact that it was fully deployed in all major browsers without any flags. So it was ready and, and primed for people to start adopting. Now, you know, in twenty nineteen, sort of the middle of the year, not only are we seeing major companies deploying in-production features like compression or transcoding or full applications, we're seeing jobs that are WebAssembly engineer in the title. And that's that's one of those, I guess, milestones for technology readiness is it a thing that every developer will be using? Is it going to replace React? Certainly not, and it's definitely not there. If that was the case, but it's it's no longer a toy and something for academics, but a thing that is now a tool in the toolbox for many companies. What does it mean to be a WebAssembly engineer today in 2019? I think it means you wear two hats. There's a website and Twitter account WebAssembly Jobs, and I check it every day, and. A lot of the places who are hiring these engineers, and I don't know if they actually use that title, but effectively it's what they're looking for, is you're a front-end engineer. So you understand the, the domain of, of building something for the browser, but they need to also become an expert in some other language and technology. So a bunch of companies who do audio processing are looking for someone with C++ and audio expertise, but who also has done a lot of front-end development or is, you know, front-end curious I even just saw an article this morning with Ableton showing a, a demo of something in a tutorial, which is like, I mean, it's, it's going mainstream in that regard. Or the physics engines, the game engines, Unity, the uh, front end development tools, so Qt from Trolltech, they are heavily invested in WebAssembly and are constantly hiring folks to expand their capabilities to build desktop-like applications on the web with their stack. So it's an interesting role, I think, because they require this expertise in a technology that's only a few years old, plus all this other domain-specific knowledge that they were hiring for anyway before. So kind of hard to hire, I think, but it's an interesting uh, inflection point.
0: Well, now I must find out what's going on at Ableton. Uh, (laughs) I'm very interested in these digital audio workstations and how they're getting them into the browser. How is WebAssembly going to impact internet users? The canned answer is most internet users won't even know that
1: WebAssembly is making their lives better. I believe that, and we're starting to see some of that. I think for users on mobile, it might have the largest impact in terms of battery and memory, because it will enable applications that are you know, rich user interfaces that do processing, do that in a very efficient way on the device, and send less data over to the cloud. So take your Example of, I'm uploading something to a Dropbox-like site, I need to gzip it, maybe even encrypt it. Today, that's a very expensive operation to do on a mobile browser, especially on low-end phones. But as WebAssembly becomes available onto those devices, and many of them have it, now you have smaller files to send of the wire that are compressed faster.
0: The WebAssembly tool chain is the set of tools for compiling and running WebAssembly code. Give an overview of the tools in the WebAssembly tool chain. I realize it's a very dense space and there's a lot of interchangeability, but give me your perspective on the tooling today. Yeah, that it is a very dense space in some
1: regards, but also pretty shallow in other areas and in the sense of what's different than the normal technologies we're familiar on the web is that WebAssembly is always going to be somehow compiled, whether it's compiled by the developer or compiled by the runtime. There's this compiler tool chain aspect to it. And there's a bunch of folks working on different types of compilers and taking one type of compiler and reimagining it so it's a little bit easier. But there's that aspect of taking the one language and, and compiling it down to WebAssembly. How do you debug that? How do you build a very complex application with that? That's one area where it's getting more sophisticated. There's the language-specific aspect of that development. So if you're a Rust developer and you're trying to get your Rust thing into a browser, sure, there's the compile tool chain, but there's a whole bunch of libraries and supporting tools that the Rust community is developing around WebAssembly to make that um, interface and interoperability better. And then there's the runtimes themselves, and runtimes is, is an interesting topic because we know of the runtimes that we're familiar with are the browser runtimes. And they all have WebAssembly runtimes these days. But there's the debugging of those in, in the runtime. There's the portability and, and even moving those out of the browser and, and embedding those into other systems, which I think is interesting and challenging. And you know, I think there's the interplay between WebAssembly and, let's say, the host environment. So I'm using general terms here. But when you run your WebAssembly code in the browser, there's less about the debugging about it, but actually how does WebAssembly interact with, let's say, the DOM or JavaScript? And if it's running outside of the browser, how does it interact with the operating system or the hardware underneath it?
0: What's the developer experience today if I want to do something in WebAssembly? Or what would I do in WebAssembly today as an average developer?
1: So the one of the oldest tools and the oldest end-to-end tool chain is Inscription which is both the compiler, if you will, for not a very accurate term, and the set of libraries that gets compiled into it such that it can spit out some JavaScript that you can just drop into a page. If you look for Hello World WebAssembly, that's probably the tool that's going to be recommended. It takes your C++ code or Rust code, converts it through the compilation process into a WebAssembly.wasm file. It will also generate you some JavaScript, which is just normal JavaScript APIs today, acroscript module importing in the future, and now you have JavaScript APIs in your web application that you can call. So a lot of it's the most common app is you know, adding two numbers, and so you write some C++ code. At the other end, you get a JavaScript DOM API, which is your own you know add these two numbers thing.
0: So that, that actually illuminates the point that the WebAssembly tool chain today is mostly assuming an environment where there's a JavaScript engine and like a browser-based environment or or perhaps a headless browser or somewhere where you have a V8 JavaScript engine or the SpiderMonkey JavaScript engine, does a WebAssembly toolchain always assume that there is a JavaScript-based environment around it?
1: Great question. And, and the answer is no. And I think you've had guests in the past who talked about... What's in the spec for WebAssembly, which is non-web embeddings. The standard actually defines the core and the JavaScript layer. And the implementations that exist today have those separations. And that was, for future looking, of applying WebAssembly outside of the browser. And JavaScript and a JavaScript runtime is only one place it might find itself. And one of the newest efforts within the working group is the concept of, well, if we run it outside of the browser, what are the things that your WebAssembly code might expect or need to operate? And that's the WASI, the WebAssembly Standards Interface, and some other related efforts that are going on.
0: WebAssembly provides some sandboxed isolation, which offers some security benefits, Describe the isolation model of WebAssembly. I'm no expert in that, and probably someone
1: from Mozilla and Google could do a better job, but the genesis of WebAssembly came from the web, and... Our browsers, from very early days, had this idea of isolation once we moved beyond tabs. And so different browsers have innate isolation mechanisms. Even V8, I think, has, they call it isolates. Other browsers have other ways to isolate. Because when you're on a web page, you don't want it to reach out and grab cookie or other information from another tab on your machine. All APIs that the W3C works on keeps that in mind and ensures that. And so with WebAssembly being born out of that same working group, the TC39, from JavaScript, they borrowed a lot of those concepts of isolation and not assuming that there'll be good actors on the page. And so the JavaScript WebAssembly runtime, so the browsers, leverage the existing isolation provided by the browsers we're talking about and the APIs that are Going through the committee, there's all, there's even a discussion as part of that standards process where they talk about how do we ensure the isolation model can be enforced by the runtime and then spec'd out in the specification itself.
0: You know, I, I realized that some of this material might be like a little too deep in the weeds, but, you know, WebAssembly is, it's such a big space and I continue to be perplexed by it and the, the sheer volume of things within it kind of reminds me of when, We started covering cryptocurrency-related topics just because of the sheer scope of what the ecosystem represents. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you just a few more kind of lower-level questions. Then we can get Mm -hmm. back to some kind of higher-level systemic questions around WebAssembly and specifically WebAssembly and IoT. But there is this WebAssembly system interface, which, as I understand, is defining the interface between the WebAssembly world and the file system, the kind of operating system. the How are you allocating space for files? How are you accessing files? How are you accessing lower-level system resources? And this is pretty important if we want to have a consistent way of creating these... Non JavaScript abstractions; these, you know, language neutral abstractions that we can deploy over the internet, execute in a safe fashion, and access lower level system resources. This is a really useful idea. What's your understanding of the WebAssembly system interface? That is is generally in the direction of its its, its stated
1: goal, and it's it's interesting because when we coming from the web and thinking about web technologies, there's actually always this assumption that we took for granted that there is a host environment, which is the browser. It does far more than just run your JavaScript code or render DOM elements. It plays the role of a host or literally the operating system. And there are primitives that are there as part of accessing networking, accessing file systems, and also primitives that are missing that you might expect from a traditional host or operating system. And so when we transition to not the browser, we have those gaps, right? The language, the runtime is expecting certain things to be there. And, and so WASI fills in those gaps that we actually just take for granted in JavaScript that any language that needs to be running in a host environment or in a non-host environment would expect. A lot of languages have specifications. Sometimes they're called freestanding mode or hostless mode. So C has this in the language. So it doesn't expect or assume there's an operating system under the hood. This kind of brings a little bit back to IoT. Some languages make that assumption. Some languages specifically call out, well, if we don't have an operating system, then we don't have a file system, or we may not have, you know, networking, or may not look like a Unix network socket, etc. And so Rust also has some of these primitives. And what Wazi is trying to do is to find that gap between a language that may have a freestanding context and doesn't need that, as well as languages that just have that built in and require that to run in the first place. And from there, actually doing the things that you might want to do in a host environment. So, you know, running to file systems, opening up sockets, etc.
0: The drumbeat that I've maintained throughout most of the WebAssembly shows is that the main thrust of using WebAssembly is so that you can send, for example, a Rust module over the internet and execute it within a browser. And this can be really useful because... Rust has certain language benefits that JavaScript does not. So that's great if we can have non-JavaScript code execute in a browser-based environment. But as we start to talk about IoT, IoT devices, you know, they already can execute code that's not JavaScript. We can execute whatever code we want on a Raspberry Pi. Why do we care about WebAssembly when it comes to IoT? Answering that question is what got me interested
1: in WebAssembly in the first place. So going back to three years ago, I was working at a company called Particle, mentioned that before, and I was responsible for the product, which is the embedded operating system and the tool chain and all the things around it. And the lingua franca for IoT devices, if they're they're the smallest you know, microcontrollers with that 120k of RAM, to even Raspberry Pis, is typically C and C++. And that's because of the constraints on resources. Maybe as you get higher and more expensive devices like a, you know, a Nest camera, you might have the, the luxury to have Java or other higher order languages. But really, you've got to squeeze as much juice out of those devices as you can. And so a lot of the people trying to build on IoT on these smaller devices are struggling. Struggling because there's three things they have to do. One, they have to build a connected product, which is what their end goal is. But two, they have to use a language they may not be experts in or being able to to perform well on. And three, they have to also understand the constraints of that device. So one of the top requests I kept on saying is like, I want to build a device using JavaScript. I want to take JavaScript and run it on a microcontroller because it's familiar, I know how to write that well and test it well. The problem is. Some of those early JavaScript runtimes used up the entire resource of the device before it even ran your code. So multiple languages just couldn't really run well on an embedded system. And then on top of that, let's say you could, and there are actually now advances in performing JavaScript, Python, and Rust on these types of devices. The platform provider, so Particle in this example, would then have to write some interface between JavaScript, that JavaScript runtime specifically, and the lower-level hardware drivers. So to turn that LED on or off, there's very specific protocols you have to communicate over or talking to the register of that system. And in this world of sort of handcrafted crafted runtime, so this JavaScript runtime is different than that other one, would require the platform provider to keep on rebuilding their device drivers and their network stack and their crypto stack to some degree because each one is a unique snowflake. And so when I started to hear about WebAssembly, there's a couple things that sort of checked off the box. One, it was this ability to run multiple languages with a single target. It also meant that as a platform provider, we would just have to build a WebAssembly module that talked to our hardware and not a JavaScript module, a Python module, and a Rust module. And I think the most interesting thing at the time, for sure, was that all these browser vendors were behind it. So that meant the tooling, the, the debugging, the community of creators and people who understand it would grow a lot faster than any of these smaller projects to do a high, hand-rolled, high-order language. And so it's a, certainly an aspect of accessibility, I think innovation too, you know, the ability to get a bunch of people who may not speak, you know, can see in C, and C++ well, having tools they're more capable in can inspire new ways to solve these problems. And then as I got more into it and understood the space more, there's other benefits which are just super interesting, like the ability to stream a WebAssembly file and JITIT is actually is kind of interesting and you can't really do that in precompiled C++, at least at the operating OS level today.
0: Let's go deeper into that. So if I have a WebAssembly module that's written in C++ and I compile it to WebAssembly and then I send it over the internet to be executed on a remote device or in a browser somewhere, why am I able to execute that in a streaming fashion? I mean, because we know that you know, if, if I was to pre-compile a C++ module and I was not compiling it to WebAssembly, then I would need the full module. I would need all of the bits in order to execute that. Explain the streaming compilation feature of WebAssembly. Yeah, and it's, it's also important. A lot of the times when I talk
1: about these devices, I, I think about those, those tiny embedded devices more than I think about the Raspberry Pi. So the value gets grayer when you get to something like a gateway, but you take your typical sensor or your door lock, they are running what's known as real-time operating systems. And the real-time aspect is less interesting. It's more about how they're, they're developed and how they operate. They're actually monolithic operating systems as opposed to modern Linux or Windows where you have your operating system boots up and then you install user applications. Your real-time operating system as they exist today are all compiled into one single binary And there are clever hacks of chunking up operating systems and allowing you to to update a very specific region of memory. But those are fragile. And those are really just used for over the updates, not for runtime. And it would be really hard to break up that application. Now, with something like one of the frameworks that do embedded higher-order languages, like uh, MicroPython is the Python for microcontrollers, they they have a way to reserve a region of memory where the MicroPython runtime, the operating system boots up first, and then it can call and load in that Python file. And so that is more like what we think about modern operating systems, and it's very specific to MicroPython. That's not reusable in another another environment, and each language for embedded systems and IoT have to reinvent how they do that. And if you wanted to have multiple languages to support that sort of loading the application afterwards, it's really hard. And actually, it's really hard to do that in C++ because the way that the binary gets outputted and loaded dynamically breaks down. As opposed to, at least theoretically, since very few people are doing it, the WebAssembly runtime is the thing that boots up. So therefore, the WebAssembly runtime, the operating system, all the devices that are managed by that embedded operating system are ready to go. And now they can load in WebAssembly modules as needed.
0: Is the positive impact of WebAssembly on IoT, is that becoming a reality today? Or are we still very much in the pre-realization phases of WebAssembly coming to IoT? Definitely in the early, early phases. And even if you ask
1: me in January, I would say no one's really doing anything with IoT and WebAssembly. There are the edge cloud computing, like what Cloudflare and Fastly are doing, which actually a lot of the use cases are IoT devices, but it's it's just your traditional serverless compute. And there's two areas which I, I'm personally excited about, which are just starting to be experimented with. And one of them is running WebAssembly directly on a device. When WebAssembly was going through the, the sort of ratification phases, there was someone on Twitter who had mentioned Brendan Ike, saying, If WebAssembly is an instruction set, an ISA, and microcontrollers and other devices are custom ISAs, would it be a good idea to build a microcontroller or a microprocessor that is natively WebAssembly? And there's a fantastic thread back and forth between Brendan and that person, and basically no. And I think it was an interesting question and idea And maybe someday it will make sense to do it, but really running WebAssembly on those devices is starting to be experimented with. So we talked about multiple runtimes and how those runtimes can exist out of the browser. Earlier this year, someone was able to take one of the C++ runtimes and port it to a very popular microcontroller so you could run WebAssembly on this device, which had gobs of, of resources, but it was a proof of concept for sure. And just maybe a few weeks ago, Intel published a project that they've been experimenting with that is more complete implementation of a runtime that is meant to use the least amount of resources. So it is both good for microcontrollers and other environments that would want to run WebAssembly. And Intel is very involved with Zephyr, which the Zephyr OS is a, is a real-time operating system that they've built from scratch, and they have a port of it running on Zephyr. So they're you know sort of knitting away at, at getting... WebAssembly running on Zephyr, which is running on an IoT device. But it's very, it's very very early. And the, the sort of second area, which I think is interesting, which we didn't really talk much about yet, is the protocols themselves. And I mentioned IoT has lots of standards and standards for devices communicating to each other in different ways they do encryption to handle the idiosyncrasies of these devices. The majority of those are implemented by the spec writers in C++ in an academic environment. They're very hard to reason if you're not an expert in that protocol. They're very hard to integrate into your product if you're just a Go developer or a JavaScript developer. And you see people trying to take those IoT protocols and and make them work in other environments. I think one interesting use case would be if those specifications were implemented either initially in WebAssembly or just having that as a target, so that we don't have to keep on re-implementing those very specific and unique IoT
0: protocols just do it once. Okay, so just to reiterate, what are the problems of IoT that we believe WebAssembly might be able to solve?
1: Yeah, so there's the making it easier for more developers to write software that runs on IoT devices. So not the C, C++, and very memory-managed complex type of applications, but more JavaScript and Rust and Go. Making it easier for those devices to have multiple applications stream to them. And then sort of the the third thing I would call out is implementing IoT protocols, which are very complicated and written only by the spec authors, and make that a reusable implementation through WebAssembly.
0: Okay, beautiful. And you touched a little bit on this earlier, but do we expect WebAssembly to change the hardware standards or the hardware requirements of IoT? I don't know.
1: I think I'm personally optimistic and interested in it, like that early tweet conversation with Brendan Ike. right. It is mostly academic. There's not a whole lot of value today that can be generated from, let's say, creating an application-specific IC or an ASIC. But there are potentially security benefits. I was talking to the folks in Mozilla just about this, this actual thread. And the way that hardware security is handled today, it's usually general purpose. There's a lot of companies trying to build more hardware-based security into their chips that are, again, general purpose. Maybe they're accelerating certain algorithms. But the isolation that we talked about and the streaming compilation, if there was a hardware accelerated means inside of chips, that would actually make it a little bit better and more secure for a device to be running WebAssembly. Because these devices don't have this concept of isolates and untrusted code. They have a more, if you have access to me, you probably are my master
0: kind of mentality. How do you imagine WebAssembly impacting the cloud provider businesses? We're seeing a little bit of that with Cloudflare and Fastly creating
1: their WebAssembly environments for serverless compute. I think we'll see more of that, certainly in the like layer two providers, especially because they can offer compute with less servers. Maybe it's because... You haunt your own colo and, you know, it's too expensive overhead, but you can get a local provider that just spins up your own sort of dedicated space. And as more and more types of computing problems look like serverless, I think a lot more people are going to experiment with it. I also just, people are going to continue to do crazy things in the cloud with it. I just got a demo. BigQuery apparently can run WebAssembly because... BigQuery runs V8, and you can inject JavaScript, and you can load a WebAssembly module in, inside your BigQuery and, and use Rust hmm. to compute stuff, which is just like crazy, right? So Why would more... you want to do that? <laughs> I think mostly for academic reasons. You could reimagine you know analytics big data processing system that allows you to do maybe in-browser compute in a language or framework you know, like Python or, or Panda or something locally, in addition to the cloud processing, I think that actually makes more sense to do that using WebAssembly. But yeah, I, doing it in BigQuery was more because they could as opposed to it was a good idea. But as JavaScript has been showing up in more places, I think WebAssembly being part of that same standards body might make it interesting and surprising where you can run it.
0: Well, that's an interesting idea because I've always been curious about the federated computing thing. Like, you know, my, this is, you know, SETI at home all over again, but my browser on my computer, you know, it's got a bunch of spare cycles that could be used for productive things. It would be great if it could be constantly munging my personal data and providing me with recommendations and information about cool things. And wouldn't it be great if I could use those extra clock cycles and, you know, maybe WebAssembly can help, me maybe make an extra buck or two. Maybe I can use the federated computing model to process data from other people. But that dream has has been a long time coming, so I won't get my hopes up. Totally agree. But
1: a lot of the non-IoT use cases, which is crypto and blockchain, like you mentioned, they're all going down that path. Surprisingly, the, the largest user of WebAssembly outside the browser are a lot of the blockchain companies. So Ethereum was the first to sort of make this stride with EWASM. But last I heard, there was 10 or 11 blockchain technology companies who are not using Ethereum, implementing their own WebAssembly runtime or borrowing someone else's. And part of the reason to do that is because it enables them to have more flexibility in the, the contracts that people can write. But it also allows them to do things in the browser. So in ways where maybe for privacy or security, you want to process it before it goes out becomes really interesting for them. And, you know, I had a thought experiment with someone at one of these companies after the meetup with a bunch of beers in our hand about, well, what if WebAssembly, being both a binary format and, and a way to do compute, could, for example, download a blob, only I as the, you know, the owner of that data can access it, decrypt it all within the context of my isolated browser session, do something with it, and then send it off. Or, Conversely, what if I was able to provide limited access to my very private data to someone? And the key was given to them such that they can only decrypt some of that data. Now you're talking about privacy with data that's truly portable, you know, with air quotes and and sci-fi around it. But it's interesting because before this kind of way of thinking, there's been a lot of experiments with using JSON or JavaScript or whatever to send data in in an encrypted way and and keep it really secure. The fundamental problem, though, is once it's at rest, once it's in the hands of the person who has it, at some point they just need to unpack it and they can copy it and they can send it off somewhere else. But this idea that WebAssembly could actually be running its own code, right, for the decryption, could have more control over how it's being. Used and reused. Um, I don't know. It got late and, and we ran out of beer, so we, we didn't go further <laughs> with it. But, but it's it is an interesting potential shift in paradigm, which I think could be cool.
0: Yeah, hard to know if WebAssembly on Ethereum is one of those things that looks like peanut butter plus chocolate, or actually is something as amazing as peanut butter mm-hmm. plus chocolate. Like, is it you know is this just like another added layer of kind of false hype? Or Mm -hmm. is it, you know, is this really the key to executing all kinds of code on top of solidity? Because solidity is this, you know, Ethereum language Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. is reportedly not that fun to program in. So anyway, I guess, you know, we'll we'll wait to see what happens there. What other changes to the business landscape do you expect WebAssembly to lead to? Let's see.
1: I think it will certainly change the way, to some degree, and I'm not going to be all fanciful about it, but change the way that people think about building applications. And even we talk a lot about the browser and how the browser is going to have these subsections of applications that are doing more complicated compute or cryptography or whatever. I also think it it might even change the way people think about sharing code between the browser, the server, and let's say even native apps. And we saw a little bit about with that when Node and, and some of the, the front-end frameworks started to do some sort of, you know, the isomorphic coding. Never really delivered, but I think with things like audio and audio processing or DRM, cryptography, IoT, when the things you're writing once that are keep on increasing in complexity, you might want to really reuse that now as opposed to having, I don't know, your express JS routes mapped to your, your React routing framework. That's a problem that you could solve other ways. And I think this increasing complexity at the client would benefit a lot. And so you might even see people rethink how they structure their applications. A lot of the teams I worked on, especially on the native side, and nested this a lot, and other teams at Google, would take the most complicated part of their protocol, their security, even the ways they treat user data, and do that in C and C++, and either compile that out, if it's compilable, or embed it in their Android, iOS, and, and server-side language. And so I think it's going to come from that mindset. And maybe more companies will do that as they have those type of problems. Or maybe they'll use libraries that are written by someone else who's actually under the covers using the same reused code. There's a bunch of, I mentioned audio a few times now, there's a bunch of audio companies that are doing that. I don't know what Ableton's doing, but we should go check it out later. <laughs> yes, a, we should. There's a company called Superpowered. And they do audio processing voice chat, and they have been investing a lot in WebAssembly because they can reuse this very complicated and research-backed processing algorithms in the same context. So I think people might just use their library and call it done and not even know it.
0: Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure.
1: Wow.